And again, welcome again to everybody um, here. Uh, we're, we are Woodside Community Church. We're extremely excited um, that you guys are here on this day where we um, celebrate um, God's faithfulness um, to us. Well, what we're doing is we're, we're celebrating our uh, identity um, in this church, particularly the, the diverse nature of the church. Um, that's actually what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about identity. Um, we're going to start off by, by talking about personal identity, and then we're going to close uh, by talking about um, corporate um, identity. For those of you who are new here, one of the most important things that defines us, that identifies us as a church, is our very high view of the Bible. Right, so we always read a passage um, in um, service. We always sing songs that, that reflect the truth as revealed in Scripture. We believe that the Bible is literally God's Word. Um, and if that's actually true, well, it means the Bible is really, really important. Right? If the creator and sustainer of the universe decided it was necessary to tell us something, well, you'd think we'd want to know what that something was. So if God exists, I I'd really like to care uh, I'd like to know what he cares about. I'd like to know what he has um, said, what he thinks is important, and what I can do to be on his good side. So if the Bible is actually what it claims to be, well, there's just nothing more important um, than the Bible. It's a message. It is a word from God. And if that's the case, that should then transform a worship service. That should transform um, what a sermon is all about. Right? So we don't do um, topical sermons you know, about like your best life now or 10 tips um, to a better uh, marriage. You're also not going to get these Joel Osteen type messages where I come up here and tell you how great you are and how great everything is and how you can get more stuff. Um, think about it. If this book is actually God's word then who cares what I have to say or what I think? My main job as a pastor is to teach you what this book says um, and explains to you what it means and why it is important. And that's why we preach um, what we call expositional sermons, where we take a book of the Bible and we slowly work through it verse by verse. Right? Sounds like it could um, be boring, but it's not. Because another one of my main responsibilities is to convince you um, that this book is actually quite interesting, right? That it's living, that it's active, um, as Hebrews says. Um, if I take this amazing book and I make it boring, then I should be fired, right? Uh, boring pastors drive me crazy, right? It's not a boring book, so for us to make it boring, I think, is a great um, tragedy. So it's my job to show you what the book says and why that is interesting and why that is important. So right now, we're smack dab in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians. So if you've got a Bible, start turning to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at just four verses this morning, verses 26 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one for you. Um, the passage is on page 974 um, there in the Pew Bible in front of you. And as I said, what I want to do, uh, I want to look at this passage in terms of identity. Right? Unless you're Superman or Spider-Man, right? you don't think a lot about your true identity. Um, but um, it, it's actually really, really important. Now, how do you define it? How do you define the word identity? Well, your identity is quite simply, it's, it's who you are. It is your conception and understanding of your own self. It's the unique combination of all the different characteristics and abilities and experiences and whatever else that makes you, you. The problem is, um, all, you don't have to read a lot of books or watch a lot of movies or read much news to realize that we are all plagued by an identity crisis, right? There's not a person in here um, who is completely satisfied with 
who they are. Right? Deep down, we all have some sort of awareness that something's not quite right. You know, we should be better, we should be more significant, we should be more recognized by others for how great we are. This week, I was skimming through this book. Um, it's an old Pulitzer-winning book back in the 70s called The Denial of Death. And this book was written by this cultural anthropologist. He's this atheist guy. He ironically died the year that he published this book, The Denial of Death. It's kind of ironic. Um, but his name was Ernest Becker. And the basic claim of the book is that we are so terrified of death that we refuse to face the reality of it. We, we suppress it. We ignore it. And I think he's spot on, but that's, that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. At the beginning of the book, he's wrestling with this problem that we're all aware of, that he refers to as mankind's tragic destiny. And this is what he writes. He says, we must desperately justify ourselves as an object of primary value in the universe. We must stand out, be a hero, make the biggest contr possible contribution to the world. We must show that we count. Right? That's what identity is about. He, he's saying that there's, there's something inside of all of us that craves greatness and value and worth. And we will do whatever we think is necessary to gain those things and establish our identity. Right? Every one of us takes a few of these things that we identify as most important and then we invest in those things as a way to establish our identity, to prove that we have value, to prove that we matter. This is a universal condition. We are all at times faced with the question of who are you? And we must give an answer. And we do so in a variety of different ways. We identify ourselves by our intelligence, our education, our creativity, our work, our money, our family, our, our sports teams, and on and on. We all have these various things that we identify ourselves with. But there's actually a big debate out there um, about identity formation. Where does our identity come from? Who, what makes us who we are? And for a while, scientists would say, oh, it's just DNA, it's all, it's all physical. But we know that there's something more to it than that. And now today, everyone kind of generally recognizes that the primary factor in the formation of our identity is our identification with significant others. In other words, relationships are the primary factor that shape us into who we are. And that is a brilliantly biblical insight. No one's identity is formed in a vacuum. Your relationships are the key factor in developing your identity. And that's actually what our passage is about this morning. You see, we're all striving so hard to establish our own identities, to prove our own value. But the ways in which we try and do that, right, that list that I just uh, mentioned, they can never deliver what is promised. So here in these few verses, Paul is going to show us the three different relationships that are most fundamental to establishing um, the secure identity that we all so desperately crave. Three relationships he's going to explain in just four quick verses. And the order is really important. He's going to talk about our relationship to God, our relationship to Christ, and then our relationship to others. In verse 26, it's the climax of Paul's entire argument to this point where he declares that you are sons of God. How? Verse 27 tells us how. By putting on Christ. To what end? Verse 28 is going to tell us unity. We are all one. 
But let me, let me finally read the text um, for you. Let's get our minds in the Word, and then we'll come back and I'll explain to you um, what he is doing here. So look at Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start kind of in the middle of a phrase there in verse um, 26 um, to the end. Um, this is the Word of the Lord. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let me pray for us real quick uh, as we begin. Father, we thank you um, for your word. Uh, we love you. Um, we thank you for this day. Um, everyone here, uh, we thank you for the diversity with which you have blessed um, this church. Father, we want that diversity to be a reflection of your value and of your um, greatness, um, Lord. Right now, I pray that you would focus us for these next few minutes um, on your word. Um, Father, show us these, these great and valuable truths, um, Lord. I pray that you would work um, through your word, that you would illuminate um, these truths and apply them um, to our hearts. Father, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Father, do for these people what I cannot um, do for them. Um, Father, and we ask that you would receive um, all the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so, so if we're speaking about the formative nature of relationships, I don't think many would argue um, that one of, if not the most important, is our relationship with our Father. Right? Like it or not, um, who your Father is has a great impact on who you become. Which almost seems unfair because we don't get to choose our fathers, right? Some of us have wonderful fathers that were there for us and loved us and nurtured us. There are a lot of us who had a very different um, experience with our fathers, right? They weren't there for us. And when they were, loving was the last thing that they were. But one way or another, that relationship with your father has had an impact on who you are now. The, the father-son slash father-daughter relationship is one that we all need. Uh, unfortunately, it's not one that we all have. But there's really good news about that here in our passage. Let me back up for a second and remind you what's going on here in Galatians. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to this church. Galatia is up in central Turkey. There's a bunch of churches up there that he planted and started. Then he kind of moves on to start other churches. And once Paul is gone, these other teachers kind of come into the picture. And they're teaching a message that is completely different than the message that Paul was teaching. They were teaching that basically to be a Christian, you had to become Jewish. right? You had to keep the rituals of the old covenant. You had to be circumcised. You had to follow the clean eating laws and all these kind of various um, things. You do those things and you can be saved. Why? Well, because in their minds, they were God's special chosen people, right? They and they alone were sons of God. So to be part of that, there were all these lists of things that you had to do to become one of them. And Paul just hates that message. Why? Well, because they were teaching what we refer to as works righteousness. They were emphasizing the things that you had to do, and if you did those things well enough, you could then be in relationship with God. But, but pause there for a second. Is that not our default understanding of what religion is? Every other religion, even many um, ideologies that claim to be Christian, basically teach you what you need to do to be saved. Right? If you obey the rules well enough, if you do the good things that are commanded, if you avoid the bad things that are forbidden, then you can be saved. 
But the emphasis is all on you and what you are required to do. That is what Paul would refer to as works righteousness. We all naturally fall into the pattern of living and doing as if everything depends on us. Right? Be good, work hard, do, achieve, obey, pray. And if you do a good enough job, God will accept you. That's the message that these men in Galatia were teaching. And that's the message that Paul despised and he combats here in this letter. Right? When most people think about Christianity, right, they think about a list of rules, right? what you can and cannot do. But Paul is here correcting that notion, and he's saying that the heart of Christianity is not a bunch of rules, but it is a relationship. Right? Verse 26, it is, he's been, everything has been building to verse 26. This is the climax of everything that he's been arguing. Here's the really good news, he says to the Galatians, you are already sons of God. And if we are sons of God, that obviously makes God the Father. But that needs some clarification, because that actually doesn't seem that significant to us. Um, because in our postmodern relativistic culture today, right, the assumption is that everyone, just by nature of being alive, um, are they're, they're sons of God, right? I'm from the South. Um, that doesn't mean that I have to like um, the music um, from the South. Has anyone up here heard of a guy named Alan Jackson? Do you guys know who Alan Jackson is? Anthony, you're going to figure this out in Nashville. Uh, one person. Nobody knows. Wow. Um, all right. He, he's got a bunch of big songs. Um, he, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Chattahoochee. He's the one that did the 9-11 kind of memorial song. Alan Jackson. Well, a bunch of big hits. But he's actually got this one lesser known song. It's great. Uh, this song is called We Are All God's Children. Listen to the first verse. This is this is a lyrical genius. Listen to what he says. He says, here comes a Baptist, here comes a Jew, there goes a Mormon and a Muslim too. I see a Buddhist and a Hindu. I see a Catholic and I see you. We are all God's children. Good grief. Emma could rhyme better than that. Like, that's just terrible. Like, come on. Make a little bit of effort to write something intelligent. Um, but, but Jackson should stick to country music because his theology is actually really, really poor. Paul says that we are sons of God, but, but peek ahead to the next chapter in verse 4. Look at uh, chapter 4, look at verse 5. He says that Christ redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Right? To be adopted is to not be naturally or biologically a son, but to be made into a son. Right? The Greek word for adoption is Quiothesia. Um, quio means son, and thesia means to make. Right? So the Greek word for adoption literally means to make a son. Right? So the, the doctrine of spiritual adoption necessarily implies that everyone is not a son of God just by nature of, of their birth. What he does is he makes some into sons and daughters. He adopts some. Uh, but that, that's kind of a side point. We'll, we'll cover that next week. Next week is all about adoption, so come back. Um, for that. But the focus right now is that we can become sons because God um, is a father. And that is quite a claim, right? We can have God himself as our father. There's this author named A.W. Tozer, and he opens this famous book of his called The Knowledge of the Holy by saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Right, so what, what do you most naturally and quickly think about when you think about God? And what terms do you think about Him? 
right? Most people today think of him as, as little more than kind of like a, a cuddly old grandpa, right? He's like a little chubby, he's got a white beard, he's got up there giving out candy, you know, he gives everybody everything, um, what they want, affirming everyone and loving everyone. In the past, people have, have tended to think of God a little bit differently, right? Traditional cultures tend to think God more naturally of as something like a king or a dictator, something more authoritative and less um, personal. He seems to be generally in a bad mood, demanding things from everyone and executing judgment upon um, everyone. So you have many of these liberal churches today that would affirm God as kind of the, the cuddly um, teddy bear that affirms everyone. You have some of these kind of hyper-conservative fundamentalist churches um, that seem to think of God as little more than an executioner. You know, those, uh, at college, you, you get these pit preachers that come or these guys that come and stand on the street corner. Basically just yell at everyone and tell them everyone's going to hell is basically the... It seems to be their main message, right? That's what those guys seem to think um, that God is. So it's either like he just oh, loves everybody, super affirming, or he's like mean and everybody's going to hell. But, but Paul here is giving us uh, a better way, uh, a third uh, way that we could think about God. When Jesus shows up on the scene, one of the most radical things that he did, one of the things that was most offensive to the Jews of his day were his blasphemous claims of intimacy with God. All of a sudden, this Jesus character shows up, and he starts talking to God and about God, and he refers to this transcendent creator, king, lord of the universe, and he refers to him as father. And this was completely new, right? You don't find this in the Old Testament, right? Turn of the century, um, Judaism did not refer to God as father, and they would have not liked that fact. In fact, if you, you go talk to a Muslim friend, right, they're very uncomfortable um, with the idea of us referring to God as Father. It's too personal. It's too intimate. It, it is beneath um, such a God to be referred to in such relational terms. But here Jesus shows up in the Gospels, and he makes all these claims about God as his Father. In fact, the Bible reveals God to be fundamentally not king or lord or creator. He is all of those things, but it reveals him fundamentally and first and foremost as a father. How, how do we know that? Well, consider what God was first. Uh, what was he doing before he created or before he was ruling? You know, the smart aleck answer is, you know, he was creating hell for people who ask such questions like that, right? That's, you know, it's a joke. It's not, not a funny joke. Um, all right. But what was he doing before creation? John 17, 24 tells us. Jesus prays. He says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before anything else, before God created, before he ruled, he was a father loving his son. That's, that's fascinating. God first identifies himself as a father. And as Jesus bursts onto the scene in John chapter 1, we read in verse 12 that he gave us the right to become children of God. That's what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 3. We can be sons of God. We can have God himself as our father. But what, what is a father? What does a father do? Well, first, a father gives life, right? father brings life into the world. Fathers love, they protect, they provide, they teach, they encourage, they, they direct. Whenever a father is functioning properly in this role, it is a beautiful thing. That is what God is to those who are His. Don't think of Him first as Master or Lord or King or Punisher or something. Think of Him first and foremost as Father. And that will completely change how you relate to Him. 
And actually, one of the most important benefits of sonship, one that we often overlook, is that of access. Access is really, really important and what the next verse is going to be about. Think about it like this. I'm not particularly important, um, but I think that the illustration still works. After the service, you'll notice I'll pray and I'll run out the back door before everybody else so I can stand in the back door and greet everybody. Most people just handshake, oh, good job, and kind of pleasantries and, you know, they, they go on their way. But other people, they want a little bit more, right? They'll stop. Um, they want to kind of ask me some questions, which is really, really good. Um, I stand up here for 45 minutes. Sometimes I make some wild claims. And you all just kind of nod along. And, oh, yeah, everything he says is clear and correct. That, listen, that's, that's not the case. So, so thankfully, some of you come sometimes and say, hey, you said this, and, and what does that mean? Um, and we, we go back and forth and talk about that. Sometimes people will come who are struggling, and they just kind of want uh, me to pray for them um, for a minute. But the point is that, you know, I'll be talking with someone. You know, if it's something serious, I can only talk to one person or one small group at a time, right? So you'll see kind of this, people will kind of wait. They'll kind of back up, and they'll wait their turn. They'll, they'll follow kind of the, the proper social protocol, right? I'll finish with someone else, I'll kind of nod to the person, they'll come. Even Melissa will wait, I and mean, she'll follow the protocol sometimes. If I'm in a serious conversation, she kind of waits back and kind of, okay, we'll wait till he's, he's done. But think about it. Who is the one person who does not follow such social protocol? Right? Who, who doesn't follow this protocol for access to the pastor? It's, it's Emma. Right? Emma is the only person who does not follow the, the social convention rules of access to a pastor. I could be in the middle of a deep conversation with the Pope or, or the President. Emma would not care. Um, she's been in the nursery. We've been separated. She'll come here. She'll stand here. She'll see me. And once we, she lays eyes on me, she is, boom, she is in, and she is immediately in my arms. Right? She is doing exactly what she should be doing. She knows that she has unrestricted access to her father. And she is not shy about flaunting that privilege. Right? And it is this type of access, the, the access of a little child to her father, that is what we are now said to have with God. And that is remarkable. Unobstructed 24-7 access. Right? That is what a father does for a child. That is what God does for us. He is first and foremost our father. And this guy, we are all desperate for the love of a father. We were wired that way. We were wired to need it. It is one of the most important ways that we identify ourselves. Have you ever seen the movie Field of Dreams? Has anyone seen the movie Field of Dreams? God, you guys need to watch more movies. Field of Dreams. It's a great movie. It gets labeled as a sports movie, right? It's, it's a movie about baseball. And it is to some degree, but the baseball is actually a vehicle for the real story. Because Field of Dreams is a story about fathers. And it is a movie about um, the desire for and the necessity of a father's love. Right? The main character is this man named Ray. He's got this strained relationship with his father. They weren't on talking terms and his, and his father dies. And it just kind of plagues um, Ray um, for the rest of his, his life. And so kind of the whole story, long story short, is kind of this, this spiritual progression, supernatural, of kind of reuniting the two. Um, and I can't, I want to spend a lot of time on it, but I can't. But the movie closes with just these two men throwing baseball in a field. It's just a game of catch. And at the surface, it's kind of like, okay, that's just two grown men um, playing catch. But it's actually one of the most moving scenes um, in film because what it is, it's a son who's in his mid-40s now getting a chance to reconcile with his father. And they're doing so over this game of catch. And it is so moving and it's so 
poignant because we all deep down recognize um, how important fatherhood is, how important that relationship is. And such a scene just absolutely resonates with us. We were created to be in relationship with a father. And even if we can't have that with a biological father, we have something much better. We have the offer of a perfect spiritual father. We can be sons of God. So God reveals himself here as a father, but as a father who, who loves us in a way that we can barely begin to comprehend. 1 John 4 9 explains that love um, to us. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest to us. Right? Here's how God's love was demonstrated to us. He writes, that God sent his only son into the world. Why? Why did he do that? He keeps going. To be a propitiation for our sins. I don't expect you to know what that word means. Uh, it's a, what does that mean exactly? Well, that's actually what our next verse is about. Galatians 3.27 is going to explain that further for us. So we're all desperate to establish our identity. Everyone knows that relationships are one of the main ways that happens. And here Paul has shown us that the most fundamental relationship is that we can be sons of God. But we haven't yet answered a really, really important question. How? If everyone is not naturally a son of God, how do we become one? Now here's the second key relationship for finding the lasting identity that we're looking for. Here's how you can become God's son in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, I'm just going to completely, unapologetically skip over the baptized um, part. We'll, we'll cover that um, later. I want to focus on the second part of that verse, where he says, you have put on Christ. All right, Paul loves this clothing metaphor. He uses it a number of times. He talks about you know, putting off the old and putting on the new, putting off the old self and putting on Christ. Well, what does that mean? Right? Taken literally, it sounds a little bit strange. How do you put on a person? How do you put on God? Well, it's obviously a metaphor. The, the fact that Paul compares Christ to clothing here is meant to teach us something about Christ and our relationship with him. I assume you've heard the, the phrase, the clothes make the man. Have you heard that phrase, the clothes make the man? It means that to some degree, what we wear affects how people perceive us. Right? People judge others based on clothing. But that's actually not all that clothing does. Clothing doesn't just affect how others think about us. It actually affects how we think about ourselves. There's been a lot of studies about this recently. Northwestern University did a study a couple years ago where they brought participants in and they put them in a white coat. Half the participants, the same white coat, half the participants were told that they were wearing a painter's coat and the other half of the participants were told that they were wearing a doctor's coat. And what's remarkable is that those who thought they were wearing a doctor's report were far more um, effective on the test. They paid much more attention to detail and scored much better than the other people. Right? Our clothes, to some degree, identify ourselves. What we wear affects what others think about us and what we think about ourselves. Right? Just imagine if I kind of strolled up here on Sunday with my, my backwards hat on, my, my 20 plus year old Dean knows basketball shirt, uh, and kind of a pair of sweatpants. Right? Most of you would have a really hard time um, listening to me and taking me seriously. Right? We all um, invest some sort of value into the identifying role that our clothes play. Right? So, so we say something with our clothes. 
Um, you know, you notice some people here on International Sunday, they, they dress up in the clothes of their culture, right? Well, what are they doing? They're, they're identifying themselves with their culture, with, with their country. This is like they're, they're, it's a way to identify themselves and say, this is who we are. And this is where it really, really gets good, right? Paul affirms that we are identified by what we are clothed in. He just kind of takes it to a whole nother level. He says that those who are sons of God are so because they have put on Christ. They have been clothed with Christ. What does that, what does that tell us? What does this metaphor reveal to us? A couple of things. First, if clothes play a role in identifying us, and as sons of God, we are clothed in Christ, that means that our primary identity is in Christ. If clothing reveals to some degree who we are, then being clothed in Christ ultimately reveals who we are. We are His. Our ultimate identity is not found in the things um, in which the world finds it, but only in Christ. The metaphor also teaches us uh, about our closeness um, with um, Christ. We have a number of possessions, but our clothes are the only ones that are literally with us everywhere, right? We, they, we are dependent on them to cover us and to shelter us. They are ever present with us. We can't get away from our clothes, right? We are to be this intimate and this dependent on Christ. But most importantly, the metaphor of being clothed in Christ answers our question of how we can become sons of God. Because clothing is about being presentable and being acceptable. I, 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 just, I wish I had time to run through a whole biblical theology of nakedness and clothing. You're in luck. I don't have time um, to do it. Um, but real quick, let me kind of just give you a brief overview. If you go all the way back to the beginning, if you go all the way back to Genesis, there's this random one weird verse kind of in passing. We just read uh, that the man and the woman were in the garden and they were naked and they were unashamed. Odd. All right, why are they pointing that out? Why is that significant? All right, they've got this the perfect, unobstructed access to God himself. They've got a perfect relationship with the only perfect person. And if, as we've said, relationships are the primary, uh, are primary in the formation of our identity, then it makes sense that they were naked. Right? They needed no clothes to identify them. They were identified perfectly by God. What do clothes also do? They, they cover. They shelter. Thus, they needed none of those things because there was nothing to cover them from or to shelter them from. God provided everything they needed physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But you know the story. What, what happened? They reject the terms of the relationship with God. They reject his authority, and they try to exert their own autonomy. They give up being identified by him, and instead try to find their identities in themselves. And the result, one of the first things that's mentioned, is that they immediately become aware of their own inadequacy and their nakedness. And then they quickly take steps and try to cover themselves with clothing. In sacrificing their relationship with God, they end up sacrificing their own identities and must then take steps to cover themselves with clothing. But then the most fascinating thing happens. All the way at the very beginning, back in Genesis chapter 3, the gospel happens. They reject God. They run from God. What happens? God runs after them. God comes into the scene. He pursues them. And what is it that he ends up doing? He provides for them. What does he provide for them? It's fascinating. He provides for them clothing. 
Almost in passing, as the account closes, one of the last things we read is, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That's really, really significant. Don't miss that. They had tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves and trees or whatever it is. You know, you see all the pictures and they're covered in leaves. Right? They covered themselves. But then it says here that God comes in and clothes them with skin. Animal skin. What has just happened? It's really, really easy to miss. Death has happened. An animal has been killed for the purpose of covering the people. Why? It's really weird. What's going on? God had told them the terms of the relationship. He had said from the very beginning that rejecting him would lead to death. This is actually is not that strange. Um, every relationship inherently carries with it certain rules and expectations and consequences. Right? Melissa expects me not to cheat on her. Right? That's just it built into the marriage relationship. So to do so would carry with it drastic consequences. Well, to metaphorically cheat on God and to reject Him carries with it far more serious consequences. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. And that actually makes perfect sense. We all have within us this innate sense of justice. When someone wrongs us, we demand that that wrong be made right. We want justice. Crimes must be punished. Murderers must go to jail. Rapists must be gotten off the streets. It's just common sense. Well, that's what sin is. It's crime against God, and it carries with it consequences. Separation from Him. Um, death. But what happens in the story? God says, you reject me, you will die. They reject Him, what happens? They don't die. Why not? Because something dies for them. Something else dies in their place. There is a substitute. Sin demands death, but instead of demanding the payment from the man and the woman, God provides the payment for them himself. They sin, something else dies. And through that death, their nakedness is covered. Do you see what's going on here all the way back in Genesis chapter 3? It's amazing. It's it's the gospel, right? Uh, thousands and thousands of years before Christ, um, the gospel is being preached through this picture. God provides for them clothing. He covers their shame. What is he doing? He's giving us a picture of this verse, Galatians 3, 27. Clothing identifies us. It shelters us. It covers our nakedness and our shame. It makes us acceptable in the eyes of another. You would never go meet the president naked, right? No, you go put on your best clothes because those clothes make you presentable to him. And that is exactly what being clothed in Christ is all about. Like the first man and the woman, we have all likewise rejected God and gone our own way. And this has consequences. When you blatantly reject and disregard the laws of this country, you're going to eventually get caught and pay the price. Crime demands payment. It's, it's no different with God. He would not be just if he ignored sin. No one would be happy if a judge let a guilty murderer go free. Now, we would all cry out for justice. Well, the just judge is no different. There must be a payment for sin. How in the world, then, could we be sons of God if we have rejected him and rebelled against him? 
And this is where the gospel is so remarkable and so unique. Everyone is aware that something is wrong with the world and with themselves. We all carry with us some sort of, of guilt, uh, so we, we try and take these steps to cover ourselves, right? When we try to put up a good front, we try to make things right, we try to clean up our act. Oh, I'll just obey the rules, I'll keep the rituals, I'll be a good enough person, and hopefully I can prove myself worthy. But it never works. We can never deal with our guilt problem ourselves. We can never identify ourselves. We can never cover our own shame. So we've got this penalty, this, this debt hanging over us that we are powerless to erase. And so what do we do? Remarkably, according to this passage, the answer is nothing. We can't do anything about it. God has to do something for us. And that's what we see in this passage. He adopts us. But what happens in adoption? Right? The kid doesn't like come to you and find you and negotiate like a contract with you and try to like convince you to become his father. No, you can't win or earn or negotiate a father. A father comes in, enters himself into your picture, has mercy on you and rescues you and makes you a son. And that's what God has done for us in the gospel. But just as in adoption today, it is a costly transaction. There is a debt that must be dealt with, and that's where Jesus comes in. This penalty must be paid. So there's two solutions. Either you pay it yourself, uh, which try as you might, you can never do, or God pays the penalty himself for you. Sin always leads to death. Remember the garden. They sin, something else dies. That's the gospel. We sin, something else dies. And that something else is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The essence of the gospel is substitution. Right? I screwed up big time. I received the death penalty for my crime. But the gospel is that Jesus comes in, he moves me aside, he stands in my place, and he takes my death. He pays my penalty for me. Martin Luther referred to this as the great exchange. Jesus gets what I deserve and I get what Jesus deserves. We switch places. That is what it means to put on Christ. Just like God provided a substitute for the man and the woman and covered them with it, God has provided for me a substitute and he has covered me with him. I am now clothed in Christ, which means that now when God looks at me, he sees Christ. The clothing, that clothing, Christ now identifies me, and that is what makes me acceptable in the sight of the only one to whom it matters to be acceptable. I, Matthew Shores, neglectful pastor, short-tempered husband, impatient father, idolater, proud, greedy sinner. I, I can go on and on with a list of why I'm not a particularly good person. Just, just ask Melissa. But, but this man, this, this chief of sinners, as Paul refers to himself, is acceptable according to the perfect standard of a holy and righteous God. That is unbelievable. How is that possible? Because Jesus' record is credited to my account. I am not acceptable because of anything that I have done. Right? I am acceptable only because of what Christ has done as my representative. It is not my good works. It's not my um, good deeds or anything that I do that makes me acceptable. If it was dependent on that, I would be doomed. And I prove that every day. 
But it is solely because of what God has done for me in Christ. That's why Luther, he would refer to Christians as simul justus et peccator, which in Latin means simultaneously justified and sinners. Right? We don't, he doesn't just make us perfect and clean up our act so that he can save us. No, he covers us with Christ and he saves us. So we are justified and accepted while we still remain sinners. Because it's not dependent on our own goodness, but on God's goodness toward us. And that goodness is expressed supremely in the sending of his son to die in the place of his enemies. Why? To pay that penalty, to set us free, to cover that sin, so that he could then adopt us and make us his sons and daughters. Now that is an identity that I can get down with, right? That, that is an identity that I can rest in and feel secure. It's such a freeing truth, right? We're all killing ourselves trying to establish our own identities by what we do. We're also desperate to prove our, our worth and our value. And man, it's, it's exhausting. It's never enough, right? I, I do it with preaching, right? I, I so tend to wrap up my own identity and my own self-worth and value and my ability to preach well and impress you guys and do a good job. But when I do that, it, it cripples me. It, it wears me out. It exhausts me because you guys can never be the thing that identifies me. Right? It will never work if we try and identify ourselves with anything else in the world. We're so insecure. We're ever-changing. And because the circumstances and the relationships with which we identify ourselves are ever-changing. But Paul here provides us with the only solution to our identity problem. And that solution is the only stable relationship. The relationship that we were created to be defined by. We can be sons and daughters of God. Which means that we can be forgiven, loved, protected, provided for, and accepted. Things that we all desperately desire. So we seek them in other places. But can you imagine actually finding those things in God himself? He offers it to you. Though, like me, you are unworthy, you are a sinner, though you rejected him, he offers you Christ. He offers to make you acceptable. And it's all grace. It's all about what he has done for you to rescue you and to redeem you. It's all about Jesus. That's, that's what the gospel is. It is a completely unique message. And you won't find this anywhere else. It is a free offer of acceptance by the only one to whom it matters to be acceptable. It's the free offer of life. It's the free offer of a stable and secure identity in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That is what we are about here in this place. That is what most, what most, must most identify us here at Woodside Community Church. We are sons of God. We are all clothed in Christ. Thus, we can all be one body here together serving Him and worshiping Him in this place. Let me, let me close here um, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you um, for the good news of the gospel. Father, I thank you um, for this great revelation um, contained in Galatians chapter 3. Father, that you have um, sent your son. Um, you have paid the penalty. You have sacrificed him 
Father, so that you could adopt us, so that you can make us um, your sons. You have paid the, the hefty transaction fee to rescue us, Father, and to make us yours. Father, thank you for accepting us when we were unacceptable. Thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. Father, help us understand um, that it is all you, um, Father, and not us. If it was dependent upon me, um, Father, I would have um, no hope. Um, if it was dependent on how good I was or how good of a job I was doing, Father, I'd be doomed. But I thank you that the gospel, Father, is that my standing with you is dependent completely upon Jesus Christ and what he has done um, in my place. Father, that is the only secure place. That is the only um, foundation upon which um, I can stand, um, Lord. And I pray that you would help us understand um, that gospel. Help us um, realize what it is that you have done for us and then live um, in light of that great truth. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're um, doing here. Um, I thank you for your faithfulness over these 130 years, um, Father, um, to this place. Father, bless um, this church. Continue to grow this church both numerically, um, Father, but also, more importantly, spiritually, um, Lord, as we unite um, around these great truths, around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name um, that I pray. Amen. Amen.